Kerwick, and this is Queer Town, the podcast shining a light on the queer community within Austin, Texas. Y'all, I have an incredible conversation for you today with the one and only Joe Chan. Joe recently stepped away from being the executive chef of local hotspot Eberly after competing on Top Chef Season 19. So if you aren't familiar with Joe, you should be. I was lucky enough to sit down with Joe to have a dreamy, wide-ranging conversation on a whole range of topics, including her childhood in California and her stints in New York and Scandinavia before finding her way to Austin in 2018. Joe has a very strong work ethic, which she talks all about, but she also still manages to bring kindness to the kitchen, which I think is a really remarkable thing in such a cutthroat competitive industry. We, of course, talked about her amazing experiences competing on Top Chef, as well as her thoughts on Austin's dynamic food scene, and of course, how her queer identity informs her approach to cooking and life itself. Y'all are going to love this one. I think I say that every time, but I really think y'all are going to love this one. So let's dive in. Joe, thank you so much for coming to Queer Town. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, you can hear my cat, Oscar. He's probably going to be doing some weird shit throughout. You are welcome to call it out. I like to call them our production assistant. Oh, wow. I know it's really bad. It's It's so so, bad. It's so cringy. (laughs) (laughs) So you've been in Austin for a few years now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sort of walk me through what brought you to Austin, Texas? Well, I think like most people who make a move, I made a move with somebody uh, that didn't end up working out. We were actually together in New York, went off to Sweden together. uh, And then when I finished my contract in Sweden, she was from here. uh, And so then that brought me down to Austin. And then it's actually been a wonderful kind of happy accident that occurred. Uh, We didn't work out, but I ended up finding my fiance and finding obviously a very beautiful life here. So I've been really grateful. So my mom, weirdly enough, has a similar story where she moved here with someone who is not my dad Mm -hmm. and then met my dad. And then they've been here for like 35 years now. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that's just how it goes. That's just how it goes. Yeah. Uh, So you came from New York. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Okay. So what in your mind was alluring to stay in Austin? Well, at the time that I went through my breakup, it was at the height of the pandemic. And so it was sort of like we broke up, the pandemic just shut everything down. So I didn't really have a choice to leave. Mm. Um, And then when it really came down to it, I wanted to be here for my team. I wanted to bring my restaurant back. I wanted to sort of, you know, survive it together. And it felt wrong to leave at that point. And so, and, and, and then I found my fiance and then I found even more reason to stay. And so, you know, Austin has been such a wonderful community to me, embracing me, uh, really rooting for me in a way that I didn't expect when I moved to Texas. Mm. Um, and so I've just been, like I said, really, really grateful. That's great to hear. So I am curious about your fiance. Were you on dating apps or like how'd y'all meet? So I was, you know, this is in the middle of the pandemic. I, at that point was like, okay, 
you don't like dating apps, you've never done this, but you're never going to find anybody in a quarantine moment, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, we weren't going to bars. Bars were closed. There were no clubs. There was no like, you know, social atmosphere happening. So at that point I was like, okay, fine. You're either going to die alone or you're going to put yourself on one of these apps. She was the very first person I matched with. Shut up. Yeah. I'm no one way. of those people. No yeah. way. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever people say that to me, I'm like, Bullshit. Like, no, surely there was like one person. 100% <laughs> was the person I matched with. She, I hadn't even, it was, it was Hinge and we mm. hadn't even, I hadn't even fully finished, uh, you know, the battery of questions that they make you go through. And she popped up and messaged me. And then we ended up going on a date about a week later. And that was, that was just it. Amazing. That was it. We just knew. So what was y'all's first COVID date like? Because I went on so many like COVID dates and it was always like navigating. It felt like invisible spells around mm -hmm. me of like, I'm like trying to like defy my own logic to make this date happen. Um, some of them were really fun. Others were like, oh, this was, this was a bad idea. Well, it's tough, right? Because you're, I think what was so weird is that you have to have discussions with somebody that you just met about yeah. things that are very personal, like their comfort levels with various things. And so it was very strange, but you know, she made it pretty easy on me. It was just like, we just want to, I just want to eat outside. That's it. You know, I can only do outside stuff. And I was like, okay, that's totally fine. Uh, and at the time, some of my, my restaurant was closed, but some of my fellow restaurants were open. Some of the places that I was rooting for. So it was really easy to choose a spot. We went out, we ended up having a few glasses of wine, uh, you know, had some snacks and we ended up being there for like three hours and yeah, that was it. That's how you know when a mm -hmm. first date's going well, when it hits like the two or three hour mark and it doesn't feel like it. You don't notice, right? Yeah. yeah. It's it's that like sort of beauty of like, oh, wow, getting to discover you is mm -hmm. an interesting process in and of itself. Yeah. And we couldn't, we couldn't like stop talking to each other. We like, we're not running out of things to talk about and it just seemed to flow one thing right into the next. And yeah, it was amazing. Incredible. So you said that she reached out first. Yes. So what did she say? Because I <laughs> never like, know what to say. <laughs> I never know what to say. And I always feel like I say the worst thing possible. I'm either like so boring or I'm like too elaborate with my first time. It's so hard, right? Like that, I'm so glad I didn't have to do this very long because <laughs> it just, I, you don't know what to say. You don't know how to not be creepy and yeah. not like be too forward, but then you don't also want to seem super casual because you obviously are like looking at a picture of someone and being like, yeah, okay. You know, and that's a very strange thing to navigate, right? Um, I think she had said something like, I make fun of her for it now. She said something to the effect of, you know, oh, you're a chef. That's so cool. I think I might've met you in an event that you did. Um, and so that was kind of a really easy segue. And she, she had, she had fully met me, but it was at one of the pre COVID like thousand person events. So mm -hmm. I didn't even yeah, register that I had met her. Um, which I'm glad we didn't meet then because I was with somebody at the time and that would have been complicated. So, uh, so yeah, yeah if that, that was sort of her, her reach out to me. Wow. This is fascinating <laughs> to me because I went on so many dates. Uh, so I was dating someone when like COVID really started happening here in Austin. And then I broke up with him that summer. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I fully realized the landscape that I was launching myself into as mm -hmm. the person who did the breakup mm -hmm. because it was like, wait, I am in a hellscape now. Right. <laughs> this You're is like, choosing loneliness now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what am I doing? Right. And just like the psychology that people were bringing to dates back then, it was like, 
is this how you always are? Or is this just like a heightened version of you during COVID? Well, it was a weird part, right? Where you're just like socially, you're not getting that that relief anymore. And so like, you're like, yeah, is this how I am in front of people? Is this what I do with my hands? Is this what, you know? Um, but what was really interesting with us is that it actually forced us to kind of face how serious we were about each other very quickly because it was like, okay, am I going to allow you to be in my home? Because I am then absorbing everyone that you've been in contact with. Right. And so those conversations became very, very real, very quickly. And it seemed like we were facing down, like, you know, this 20 questions of serious dating in such a lesbian way um, very quickly. I do feel like lesbians are uniquely qualified to have those discussions mm-hmm. and to have it not be like that irregular. Whereas like if I was on Grinder, it would be like, hey, like want to come over to my glory hole? You can wear a face mask. <laughs> no, like- totally. I think also I think with, with uh, you know, my fiance and I, I think both of us were, we were ready. We were, you know, I was 31. She was 36, I think at the time. And we were both just like, we had been in long-term relationships. We had done the whole thing. We knew what it looked like when it didn't work out. And so it felt like even on that first date, we were like, do you want to have a family? What do you want to do with your life? Do you want to stay here? What's, you know, and it was very serious right off the bat because we didn't want to invest more sort of like emotional capital into something that wasn't going to work. Totally. Right. Because it is a sort of work that you have to put into it. it's so much work. And I was recently talking with my therapist and it's like the, it's like you have to onboard someone when Mm -hmm. you're dating them because it's like all of these conversations we've been talking about so far, but it's also like, at what point do they like meet the friends? At what point is it like they're fully integrated into your life? And it's no longer just like someone you're casually dating, but it's like a true life partner. Right. And also the older that we get, I feel like the amount of stories that I have to tell you are, is growing. Right. And I'm just like, Oh, am I about to divulge the last 30 years to you? Or is this really going to, you know, is this worth it? Yeah. I would love to talk about your queer identity specifically. Mm-hmm. So how old were you when you came out and how did you identify at that point? And has that changed at all over time? I think I want to say, I feel like the people I went to high school with have a better recollection of how this went down than I did. Cause I think I just blacked out during that six month period. Um, <laughs> I think I was 16, 16 or 17 when it happened. And I was like sitting in like a social studies first period class, whatever. And, uh, you know, it just had occurred to me, I'd had this like series of weird feelings as all young little gays do Mm. about people that I wasn't necessarily supposed to have feelings about. Right. And then, uh, I just wrote it down on like a note to my friend. And I was like, what if I was gay? And I like passed the note to her. And, uh, and she was like, what if you were and just passed it back. And she had created like, she, you know, lovely way had created the space where I could talk about it, uh, which was really hard in a private Catholic high school in the middle of suburban LA. So, um, it was, yeah, that, that was sort of it. It just kind of came as this realization. And then it felt like a whirlwind week of just telling everyone in my life. And once I had grasped like a, like, you know, that, that sort of label, it suddenly became, like everything was easy. Like that, that was the answer, right? That was like sort of like that missing blank thing that I had been feeling for so long. Mm -hmm. And then that just kind of filled in. And I've just always been like a classic gay. I don't know. There's a lot of letters floating around now, a lot of different things. And I've just always been like, yeah, I'm, I'm gay. I think maybe that's also because I grew up in California and went to university around the time of Prop 8. And so it just felt like a very us versus them kind of thing. And I didn't really want to get involved in like deeper labels. It was just like, this is my community. This is what it is. Yeah, that's so real. Because I do think at that point in time, there 
I don't know. I felt like I really cherished my early like queer spaces. And for my high school, it was the GSA, the mm-hmm. straight Alliance. And so similar to you, it's like that initial wording, there is such warmth and it, and it does feel like home in a way. Uh, cause it was like the first home outside of like my own home that I grew up in. Right. No, totally. I think for me, it was really once I got to university that, you know, we had our, our student union and all of this and all of a sudden it just felt like I was surrounded by people who look like me and we could joke about the ways in which we were and the things that we did and the things about our community. Um, and it just felt so free. Incredible. So I love to ask this of people, but do you remember your first like gay fictional character crush? Oh, gay fictional character. God, who was even on TV at that point or in books? God, I don't know. I think I remember my first real person crush. I don't think I remember a fictional crush. Yeah, for me, it was definitely Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi. (laughs) No, really? (laughs) Yeah, I actually had like a a dream about him after seeing The Phantom Menace. Wow. It was like second grade at the time. And it was like kind of like a naughty dream for like a second grader to have. It was like Obi-Wan Kenobi's shirtless. And we're like hanging out by a pool somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's so hilarious. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't know that I had a fictional, I I remember having like a very sort of like uh, visceral response to certain people, but then Mm. I just completely, you know, batting that away and being like, no, maybe you want to look like them rather than be with them. Right. And so I think I just batted a lot of that away. I don't know that I could actually put my finger on somebody. That is the very fascinating part about identifying as queer. It's like, who do I want to date and who do I want to be? Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's overlap. And in those instances, I'm like, Oh God, life is so complicated. Yeah. Um, Do I just want all of your clothes or how is this working? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do I want to like take your clothes off? Like (laughs) where am I going with this? I don't even know. So you grew up in California. Mm -hmm. What brought you to New York? Uh, So I grew up near LA, went down to San Diego for university and then culinary school. And then when it was time for me to go off to my externship, they kind of asked what I wanted. And I was like, you know, I just really want to go to New York. It doesn't have to be right now, but I'd love to do that. And uh, they were like, well, we actually have a former student who's at a restaurant in New York uh, and we could send you to him. And I was like, oh, well, that'd be amazing. So I packed two suitcases and left everything and didn't have like a dollar, uh, and went and became an intern at what ended up being Nobu 57. Um, and so my first restaurant was a $30 million restaurant and it was bananas. And I was cooking for celebrities in my first week and cooking for former presidents. And it seemed like everyone was important and it felt like I was in the thick of it. And that was, that was it. And then seven years in New York later, it's countless weird interactions. So I have a lot of process questions about just being a chef Mm -hmm. that I would love to ask you. So I hope you'll humor me with some of these. So what like intrinsically about being a chef is it that sort of like keeps you going back to the kitchen that keeps you ideating and maybe even getting playful with existing recipes that you yourself created? 
Well, I think being a chef is a lot of left brain, right brain. It's, it's what people don't realize is it's not just creative. I mean, yes, of course, it's wonderful to make a menu change or to play with a new piece of produce or a new protein or, um, you know, create a new dish and watch people consume it and enjoy it. Um, and that's obviously extremely uh, satisfying. But then there's this other part that's like being a manager and just like operating a restaurant and going through the people, you know, the sort of personnel issues and, um, you know, creating the space that people come into. And so there's a lot of kind of left brain, right brain that keeps it new, keeps it fresh for me. Cause there's always a new goal. There's always something to, to chase down. And I think that you would have to have both of those elements to be an executive chef, mm-hmm. which is your title, right? Right. Correct. Yeah. And so what is, you were like the creative director of the kitchen. Is that sort of a way of looking at it? Yeah, I would say I'm like, creative director as well as probably being like an operations manager. It's sort of a mix of both. Um, you're also responsible. There's just so many things. It's like, yes, the creative part is what's sort of front and center um, and what defines you. But then on the, you know, on the back end of that is just scheduling, financial management, all of those things, uh, making sure that everything's coming in on time and, and training other people and things like that. So there's just so many layers to it that are beyond just the creative. The creative is actually the part that's like, wonderful and you stay for, but then there's all these other things that you have to be very good at as well. Yeah. I am really amazed by the ability of like back house side of things to keep all of the restaurants in Austin going. Cause there's so many restaurants in Austin mm-hmm. and I feel like you really have to be like fucking innovative to stand out here. And like you've seemingly done a great job of that with your history to date. Um, how are you keeping Everly interesting? I think it, it really has to do with, yeah, being really innovative, but it's also, you know, community involvement. It, it has to do with being available to the community at large for nonprofits, for charitable organizations, for being, you know, a, a sort of restaurants are this like these pillars of the community. Right. Mm-hmm. And how we can continue to donate our goods or our services or our time to these causes to make sure that they're being seen. Um, I think that's one part of it. I think another part of it is just being really kind to our team. Um, you know, we, we create an incredible working environment, a great culture, which is the most difficult thing to create because it's a living, breathing thing that changes every single day. Um, and so not that we're not without our run-ins and our odd moments and, and hard moments with each other, but at the end of the day, we all want to create an incredible product, be a part of something important and make something sort of bigger than ourselves. And I think that that's what, you know, draws us all together. That's gotta be a really important guiding light given these last two years Mm -hmm. and everything that's been thrown at restaurants. I think Everly was closed for what, eight or nine months? Nine months. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like y'all had time maybe to like catch your breath, but I'm sure there was also a lot of like financial uncertainties Mm -hmm. and other things that I'm sure propelled you back into the kitchen uh, whenever the restaurant opened again. Well, that's the thing. During the nine months that we were closed, it seemed like every two months we were considering reopening. Mm -hmm. And so we would go through the ramp up period of writing those menus, getting ready, you know, even starting some of that prep. And then something would happen. You know, we'd have another surge. We'd have another shutdown. We'd have another mask mandate or whatever it would be. And so we kind of, those nine months weren't necessarily, we didn't know it was going to be nine months. We just kept thinking it was like, okay, it might be in a few weeks. It might be in a few weeks. And we just kept pushing it back and pushing it back to make sure our staff was safe. But through that, yeah, trying to help our staff navigate unemployment, getting their benefits, making sure they were taken care of, making sure they had food to eat and weren't losing their homes. Um, It was a lot. It was a lot. 
Yeah. And it seems like you're a true leader in that way. It seems like you're really able to step up into that leadership role and have that um, managerial support for your team. Because I think that's so crucial, especially right now Mm -hmm. when like everyone is being tested in every capacity. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, being a great leader is, yeah, part of it is just a natural thing. I think I was like the captain of every kickball team that I was on in grade school. So I think it was a natural selection thing for me, but also, you know, it it takes a lot of work. It takes that consideration. You wake up every day and you think about other people and that's what we do. And that's, it's, that's largely why it's really exhausting sometimes to be a chef because I'm thinking about your birthday more than I'm thinking about my own. You know, I'm thinking about your moments and your day and your meal more than I'm thinking about my own. And most days, you know, like, I won't eat, but I'm feeding 300 people that day, you know? And so it's just, it's, it's a really interesting thing. You have to be kind of selfless and, and have that, that moment. And there is, especially at like the scale that you're operating at it, there's like a performance to the space as well. Like having the vibe be correct, having the food come out at the right time, having like that, like ebb and flow of, uh, the dishes, uh, how easy was that to sort of figure out? Because I'd imagine there's a lot of adaptability in the moment. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's like I always say, like, you know, being a chef is sort of like the most uh, incredible video game that you'll ever play because mm. there, it, it is kind of like spinning plates. You're constantly keeping so many things in motion. Um but that's the part of it that I always loved. That part was always the part that I found the easiest, uh, you know, timing out dinner for 300 or 400 people in a night, making sure everything was perfect, catching every little thing. Those, those parts were always the parts that I, I sort of like selfishly kept for myself. And those are the parts that I really, really enjoyed along mm. with the creative parts. Mm-hmm. And then everything else was sort of what, what was taken, right? Gosh, this is incredible. It has been a goal of mine to get you on this show for a few weeks now. And we haven't had a chef on the show yet. Oh, really? And I just have a lot of just like fascinating like industry questions because I have a lot of friends who are like bartenders and like Mm -hmm. front of house people, but I don't know that many people who are chefs. And like, I don't know, like I cook in my kitchen and I'm a little uh, embarrassed to like have you in my kitchen right now. I'm like, oh, damn, like. Joe's in my kitchen. <laughs> it's fine. Up until recently, I never even cooked in my own kitchen, really. Really? It's, it's just been since I've met my fiance that we have actually like made dinners at home and, and hung out at home as much because I was just always out and I'd rather have my friends at various restaurants cook for me than have to cook it myself. Uh, so it kind of always came down to that. So no, no embarrassment at all. <laughs> well, thank you for that validation. <laughs> so what is the chef community like in Austin? I sort of have this, um, like fantasy of this like Avengers style meetup of like <laughs> all of you getting together and just like drinking whiskey and shooting the shit. Unfortunately, that's not what it looks like. That would be really, that'd be really cute if it looked like that. No, I think the, the Austin chef community is, is very warm. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's different in other cities that I've been in. It's been very competitive. You're, you're racing against each other for every guest, for every award, for every, you know, recognition point that you could have. And in this city, it just kind of seems like there's enough space for everyone to have their own thing. Um, and we're genuinely really happy for each other when things happen. Uh, so it's it's just a bit different. It's also quite small as much as Austin is continuing to open more restaurants and and sort of expand as a city there it you know it isn't as as massive as some people think. Um, so it's actually a very tight-knit small community. Yeah, I growing up here, there was Jeffrey's, mm-hmm. and I really feel like that was like the singular 
fine dining place that was trendy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was like Uchi mm-hmm. happened early 2000s. And then it's just been amazing how everything has changed and grown. And like as a local, that has been my favorite thing about how the city has changed is like the way that food has expanded life here like the quality of life is so much better than it used to be because of the restaurants here 100 percent. and i think the great thing about austin is a lot of the people who originally worked in those places that you mentioned are the ones who have gone on to create a lot of these places so in the you kind of see this like you know family effect um and the the sort of dynasties of these places so you know you'll see on a lot of chefs especially the ones that are from austin and have been in austin that they worked at uchi that they worked you know at jeffrey's and i think that's been incredible in the ways that that's grown and then the way that they've embraced kind of us out outsiders who have come from other cities to help make our contribution. I am biased because my dad's from upstate New York, but Mm -hmm. I do think that there's been a really like welcome embracing of some of that like New York, I don't know, like culinary scene here. Mm -hmm. It's really like changed the way because growing up it was like, you know, like Greasy Spoon, Tex-Mex, like kind of like cheap barbecue. I mean, it was all good. And a lot of those places are still open as they should be. But I think that you can have sort of like a life altering experience with certain dishes now. Uh, like I had a mezcal drink at Suerte the other night mm-hmm. that just felt like it was like universe brain was happening while I was sipping it. It was like, holy shit, this rocks. Yeah. No, totally. I think that's the thing is like with food, just like with any art, right? The more that you are able to sort of like absorb from everyone else and other cultures and other spaces and cities and all of that, the better it becomes because it's just the more knowledge you're taking in, the more informed what you're putting out is, right? So, oh. Thank you, Oscar. Yep. He's like, yeah, I eat food. I eat the best fucking food in all of Austin. It's the same every day. And yet I go ham for it. <laughs> uh, how are we doing? Okay. So I think this is a great pivot into Top Chef. Cool. So the show is kind of insanity to me. It's like we're taking these like very real like day-to-day aspects that we've been talking about as far as your professional life. And then it's like warping it into this competition show where you have like specific tasks, very like limited timelines. What the fuck was that first week of production like for you? (laughs) Well, it's like, like, you know, most people don't have experience doing production. So all of that is like, you know, what's your job? Why are you putting this microphone around me? You know, why are we running around in this way? How come we have to wait for six hours before something happens? Right. Um, so just getting to know production was, was a really sort of crash course and you're learning it while you're in it and trying to survive day in and day out. Um, so that was wild. And then, yeah, taking things that I sure done to some extent in my career, but not with like a massive clock and some of the most famous people in the world staring at me and, you know, us yelling at each other and, and under crazy, crazy parameters. I think you had a quote in one of the episodes where you were talking about how like you have mere seconds to figure out what it is that you're going to cook. I'm sorry. Oscar, <laughs> yes. <laughs> My sensitive cat. Yeah, they're they're truly award winning. I fucked up. <laughs> I, I should have named them like Dorito or something casual. <laughs> oh man, so cute. So the uh, season that you were on for Top Chef filmed in Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure it was really amazing to be in Houston. Houston has such an incredible food scene. 
like privately, were you a little bummed that it was so close to Austin? Oh man, I thought we were going to be on an island or maybe, you know, I don't know. I thought I would go back to the East Coast. So when they called me and told me it was Houston, I was kind of like, oh, we're not, but I could go there all the time, yeah. like, you know? So, but, but honestly, once the show started filming, I was, I felt like I had an advantage because I knew what some of the things that they were talking about were. I think, you know, when we did the queso challenge, mm-hmm. everyone was looking around like, what is queso? And I was like, oh, thank God I know what queso is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like you had that like regional mm-hmm. experience to bring with you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to ask, what is it like trying to impress people who we've all seen on TV for like 20 years. I think it's tough, right? Because there's two layers to it. It's like you want to impress them because you always, everything, whether it's, you know, at my restaurant or at my house or whoever I'm cooking for, I'm always trying to be impressive. I'm always trying to make sure like I'm living up to that moment, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel that way even when I put out dinner on Sundays with my fiance. Um, But I think cooking for people that you've heard say really awful things about other people cooking is a very real experience because you just don't want that to come out of their mouth. Right. So it's, it's a little bit of cooking scared while also trying, while they're yelling at you to, you know, be your most confident self and show us your point of view. And you're just like, but what if you don't like my point of view, you know, and you're just thrust right into it day in and day out. Yeah. Cause Tom will let you know. They he, will all let you know. <laughs> there isn't a single one of them that won't let you know. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason they have <laughs> been judges on that show as long as they have been. And just like the drama of it all, like there's such a, like the thing that I love about that show that is just so fascinating to me is it's a lot of the like, and now we mm-hmm. go into this sequence. I think if I was like, I don't know, like boots on the ground in front of the camera, it would be like, I am going to poop my pants mm-hmm. out of anxiety. Yeah. Oh no. There would even be times where I'm like, did I, did I hear that correctly? Like, I don't, how much time do we get? And like, you know, you're like, did I miss a morsel of information that is critical? And then it's just like, go. And you're like, oh, I'm not sure what's happening now. So yeah, it's, it's very bizarre it's very bizarre and just like the way that the show is filmed you have to like call things out as it's happening to Mm. the camera was that like an intuitive thing to sort of like try out or was it like okay I'm just gonna like see what I can make happen well I think you have to look at it like you have to look at it like a job right like Mm -hmm. you know that they need certain things the show doesn't work if the the viewer doesn't know what you're making or doesn't know what the person next to you is making. So I sort of caught on very quickly that it was like, okay, I think that's why I got so much FaceTime for this season was because I was just constantly like, what are you making? What are you doing? Okay, cool. Now we can move on because we've hit those points, right? Because the viewer has to be informed. They don't know when you're cutting an onion, what you're going to make with that onion, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really felt like you were able to develop a lot of camaraderie in those moments and I don't know, I think I might've gone to like an egotistical place, but it really felt like you were like, okay, like we're all kind of like in this like weird experience together. Uh, I don't know. I find you'd be very likable throughout the show. Oh, I appreciate that. No, I, I think I just, you know, I respond to stress in a very specific way, which is I just try to like make a joke and move on because mm-hmm. it's just, what is the point of dwelling in this, you know, anxiety riddled sort of jacuzzi of feelings. Um, and so I was just kind of like, you know, trying to trudge my way through it, be funny, be light, be myself and kind of realize what was real and what wasn't real. Um, and just knowing that like eventually it was going to end, right. The experience was going to end. It was going to be this amazing sort of bubble of an opportunity that I had done at one point, but it was just that it Mm -hmm. wasn't what my life was going to look like afterwards. So sort of like maintaining that balance. And there were points where I got insanely homesick and just wanted 
wanted to be home and wanted to be with my support system, wanted to pick up my phone and call my fiance or call my family and not being able to have that, you know, you just really have to have such a very, very strong sense of self. Yeah. Like you really need to be rooted in what your truth is. Um, cause it's like a indication of the career that you've had up until that point, but it also has the possibility to radically change what's to come. Oh, 100%. And I think the people who, who struggle on the show or don't show well are the ones who are sort of like grasping for who they want to be versus just being themselves. Because mm -hmm. I think, you know, in the end, I, that was sort of my perspective before I left was I was like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this, whether people love me or hate me, it's going to be who I am. That way I don't have a hard time when I get back yeah. trying to be some sort of a character, right? It was just like, this is how I am. This is how I respond to these moments in these stress, stressful situations. That actually really reminds me of working on political campaigns because I was on the field team for Beto's Senate campaign mm -hmm. back in 2018. And I had to figure out at some point in that experience what I wanted out of it, whether he won or lost that race. It's like that cannot be the final answer on what the collective experience over like all of these really intense long days will amount to. Yeah, absolutely. You have to have some sort of like rooted sense of self, right? And for me, it was like every day, just like getting past this moment, being like, you know what you're doing, do this, it's gonna be okay, whatever happens, you have a wonderful life to go back to and you're gonna be okay, right? Yeah, and you seemingly have gone back to mm -hmm. that life yeah, and are definitely. okay. Yeah. Very happy to have my freedom back, yes. I bet. <laughs> How long were shoot days, was it? just like kind of crazy hours? It depended, but I mean, very similar to restaurant days. So, you know, anywhere between eight to 12 to 14 hours a day. Um, they're long. I mean, they're production days. So it would really depend on, you know, it seemed like the day would start and then whatever happened would happen. And then the hours would just pile up. Right. So you just, you're just used to it at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like it would be like day three. I'd be like, okay, I know what the fuck I'm getting into now. <laughs> but those first two days, that would be a little like, I'm like the new kid at school. Right. Well, it's tough though, because like you'll be in there just for a few days and you've already seen people go home. Right. So yeah. you were just also desperately trying to chase it down and be like, I want this to last for longer because I want to do well, but also this is like an insane circus to continue to be in. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, there's definitely God. I just, I'm stuck on that phrase that you said a few minutes ago about like anxiety riddled jacuzzi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that is such a clear picture. I'm mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah. You're like feeling that water getting hotter. Yeah. It's like, Oh, there's like some other people in like the hot zone with me now. <laughs> oh, 100%. And the other thing about the show too, is that like, you know, you make a decision in a matter of seconds, this is what I'm going to make. And there's mm -hmm. no one to bounce that decision off of. At my restaurant, you know, I have a slew of sous chefs that are incredibly talented and, you know, all have palates of their own and can bring their own bits to the restaurant and to the, to whatever dish we're making, right. To make it better. I have an incredible front of the house team. That's very real with me about like, I don't think people will like this, or I think people are going to really like this. This is incredible or not. You don't have any of that. And so when you start out and you go to make something, most of the time when you make it, it's the first time you make it. It's not like you make it and you're like, oh, I'm going to adjust this, change it, and then put it out again. It's like that first draft is what went through your brain, came out of your hands, and is now with the judges. Yeah. Right? And I think that's where it becomes a very, very intense experience. And that's like the beauty of the show to mm -hmm. me. It's sort of like you get these things that can transcend maybe what you've cooked up until that point, but then there's like... You, you know, the dishes that they don't like, that they rip apart. And it's like, okay, well, like, 
I, I, I want to like advocate on behalf of these chefs. It's like they were doing the best fucking job they could. <laughs> right. But I think that that's also what makes it such a level playing field, right? Yeah. Is because no matter where you came from, the best restaurants in the world or the smallest places, um, you know, you, you come into it with that's the level playing field. We're all getting the same equipment. We all had the same amount of time. I think that that's what's incredible about Top Chef is it does this sort of like, you know, there's so many different kinds of chefs and it does a really great job of absolutely leveling that playing field and being like, okay, how can you do your best while mitigating the worst circumstances? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really brings to mind the specificity of the chef experience that like this element of the show is like a heightened version of your day to day. Oh, totally. So it's like your day to day is so different than mine. Cause I work in production, but like I am not like, you know, dealing with fire and, you know, all of the elements that you get to play with to cook food. Oh, totally. And I think one of the other things too is like, you know, you go and you shop for something and you decide you're going to make something. And, you know, people always say like, why didn't you decide to make something else? And it's like, well, this is all I bought. Like, you don't, you don't buy, you don't really have this because that's the other, one of the other factors, right? Is how much money you can spend. So it's like, with $300, you're not buying four options. You know, you're buying your singular option and you mm -hmm. got to make that to the best of your ability. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're really marrying whatever ingredients you're purchasing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's life, right? Right. Like sometimes they're not going to be perfect. There's not going to be prepared perfectly or whatnot, but that's what you did in that moment. Right. You just got to roll with it. Yeah. And like there is like a beauty to the theater of Top Chef in a way. 100%. Yeah. So I might ask you a bunch of rapid fire questions. Let's go. And I'm just curious to know uh, your first response. Okay. So it's like you're on the show, right? <laughs> it's like I'm throwing you a prompt just like. These are my seconds. Yeah. <laughs> these are your seconds. <laughs> okay. Uh, so these are not all going to be chef related. Okay, Some great. Some might be. Curve. Um, okay. What do you think your best quality is as a chef? I think that I'm a leader first and I'm incredibly decisive. Oh, so it's just once I decide, you know, I think I, I take in a lot of other people's opinions on the, for the most part, but once I decide it's like, we we're going to go that way. And I think sometimes people get lost in the sort of like seesaw of, you know, of, Oh, maybe it's this way or that way. Or, and we just don't have time for that. Mm. So, yeah. I love that. So what is your favorite season to cook in? Summer, probably. I mean, I think everyone's favorite is summer. I think that's what's lucky about being in Texas. It's kind of always summer, except yeah. when it's like the three weeks where we have a snowmageddon. Um, so yeah, no, I think I love summer. I love tomatoes. I love corn. I love the berries that come out, the fruit that comes out during that time of the year. It's just, you just have so much to play with. Yeah. It's really like uh, lush mm -hmm. as far as like what you get. Totally. So as far as your personal identity is concerned, what do you like to infuse into your cooking? I think, you know, in, in recent years, recent years, I've become more comfortable with infusing some of the things from my childhood and some of the flavors of my childhood, you know, growing up as like a Chinese Filipino American, like it was just sort of like, those are the flavors from home. Right. And that didn't come into my professional setting. Um, and it just, it, I think I talk to a lot of Asian chefs who deal with this kind of identity crisis within food of like, can I thread something that came from my home into sort of a more fine dining or elevated, elegant atmosphere. And it's just, it's really tough to, to sort of thread your, your two worlds together. So that's been happening for me lately, which has been really exciting. 
So could you elaborate on a way that you've brought that to life? I mean, let's see. I guess it's just like, you know, like the, the sort of like sourness that comes from Filipino food or, you know, like peanut stews that we make, or it's, it's very humble food. Um, and it's really tough to sort of get out of that mentality. It's something that Monique and I spoke about on the show was trying to get out of that mentality of like, that's for just the home. That's not for public consumption, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just grew up, you know, being feeling like the food that we ate at my house made me kind of like the other right at school because I wasn't getting a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I was getting like rice with something on top of it that nobody knew what it was. And then my mom would pack me like a mango and I'd be like, how am I supposed to eat this in front of all these people? You don't really unwrap a mango at school, mom, like an apple would have been nice, you know? <laughs> so I think like getting past those moments and the, my own sort of, uh, you know, my own struggles with it, um, it's coming out now, which is nice. I, yeah, I bet that's got to be incredibly gratifying. Mm -hmm. It feels like I'm like fully forming as a human being. So that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. You're actualizing. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're exactly. bringing all your threads together. Yep. So you are queer. You're a chef. Uh, how do those two um, influence each other if they do? I think, I mean, like, you know, I've been super lucky. I've worked for chefs who have, who have always had space for my identity, whatever that may be, and um, have always been really open-minded. Like, you know, I think Anthony Bourdain says it in one of his books, you know, it's like the kitchen is the last meritocracy. And I really felt that way when I was coming up through the industry. It was just like, I could get a pasta out in six minutes. I could cook a steak to medium rare. I could do all of these things. And I was very fast. And so nobody really cared so much. I was in really different kitchens where I was the only person who looked the way that I did. I was in kitchens where everyone looked a little bit like me. Um, and, and it just didn't matter because of that. Not to say that it, that's the way it is for everybody. Everyone has sort of a different experience, but I think I had a little bit of an easier go at it than probably most. Mm, interesting. So you, Grew up in California mm -hmm. and then you worked with Jonathan Waxman mm -hmm. in New York, New York yeah. who is like kind of known for his like California inspired cuisine. Was that like sort of your segue into working with him? Yeah. So I was working at Nobu and I just kind of felt like, you know, I was making the same thing every day, which, oh God, now how many of my cooks have said that to me? It's so frustrating, <laughs> but uh, you know, that, that is what we do, right? You're yeah. making the same thing every day, but it just didn't feel like the menu was changing. It didn't feel like it was evolving and I was looking for something different and, um, you know, Jonathan kind of came along. I met one of his sous chefs while I was out one night and he was like, you know, we literally go to the farmer's market three or four times a week and derive our entire menu from whatever we find. So whatever's there is whatever's there. And I, you know, and I was just like, wow, that's such an experience that I really want to have. And it was true. You know, we went one, one day to the market and on the way to the taxi, I like dropped a flat of cherry tomatoes. So there were no cherry tomatoes on the menu that day. You know, it was just, mm. it was such a rewarding experience to actually see how, what we were purchasing, we were like touching it, we were choosing it. And then we were creating something that day and putting it out. And it was so, so gratifying. Yeah. There's a specificity to it mm -hmm. that I think would be incredibly invigorating because you're getting to have such a, special connection with who you're feeding. Yeah, 100%. It's like you, you are curating everything, right? You're curating the full experience. And I think that that was, that was so incredible. It was so like invigorating. It made me feel passionate about food. It made me feel like I wasn't just like a cog in a machine, right? Yeah. And it, it sort of created the launch pad for the rest of my career. What was the first moment, if you can precisely pinpoint it, where you thought my creative vision is like fully forming in front of me? I don't think it... 
I, I don't think that moment will ever happen for me. Really? I feel like it's a, it's, it's constantly developing. I think just like anyone who is a part of any, you know, version of the arts or, or in any kind of creative category is like, it's hard to say like, this is, this is it, this is the moment. But I think, you know, I was so, New York is such a microscope. And it feels like you can't switch jobs even as a sous chef without everyone knowing, right? Um, and so in order to kind of get away from it, I went with Marcus Samuelson off to Stockholm and I was in Sweden for three months, kind of being his creative director over there. And I was able to be in this bubble where I was literally half a world away from everyone that I knew and I could just make things. And if they failed, they failed and no one that I knew knew about it. And if they were wonderful, then I could sort of like put that away in a lockbox, like that worked. Um, and so that was really the first time that I started to feel so connected to my creative self. Cause I, I think up until then I was so scared to try mm. because it just felt like everyone in the audience was someone that I knew. Um, so, you know, to, to get to that point was really difficult for me. And now since then, you know, it's like, I just trust my instincts a little bit more. Yeah. I think that you clearly have proven that yeah. you, you can do <laughs> I that. hope so. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating to hear you talk about like the sort of question mark inherent to your philosophy with cooking, because I am a writer and I wrote and directed a play in 2019. And that was my moment. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I can fucking do this. Like I am actually seeing my creative vision executed in front of me. But yeah, it's like we have different mediums. You're working with food. I'm working with dialogue and lights and these things that but, I can't actually control. Right. But again, like with anything like that, once you see other people buy in as well and, and you sort of like, it, it becomes a community effort and you feel validated in that space. And hopefully you're with people who are validating that, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, it changes, right. It changes within you. But as a creative person, it's really hard because when you're just like within your own four walls, you're just like, this is so safe. And then once you kind of like let it out of the box and let other people have their critique of it, of which most of those people have no skin in the game. You know, it's like the Yelp moment, right? Oh yeah. And you're just like, wow, that really hurt that. Like, you know, I, I put a lot of care into whatever it was that I created just to watch someone who could care less, absolutely destroy it without even batting an eyelash. Right. We have talked quite a bit about that on Queer Town because there's something so like disgustingly American about having a deep knowledge in something that like other people love to shit on. Oh yeah. It's like being like a nerd about anything, mm -hmm. whether it's food or comics or cats, like whatever your like deep, like personal obsession is people love to just like pick that apart. And it's like, why can't we let people just be passionate about things? Well, that's the thing, right? It's like, it's, it's like, yeah, 100%. I, I want, every day we, you know, we sort of suit up in the kitchen and we want everyone to have an incredible experience. We want to be perfect. But sometimes, you know, when you're shitting on that salad, a 19 year old kid who just started cooking made that today. And we've been training him and, and trying our best. And, you know, he like cried on his station earlier today because he was so nervous about going into service. And then he gets to pull up Yelp and see you absolutely eviscerate him, you know, without knowing that it was this 19 year old kid. Yeah. And I think that that's, what's really tough is that and what I was kind of hoping after the the pandemic sort of, you know, the initial pushes of the pandemic was with all the struggles that restaurants went through, that people could kind of drop that veil a little bit and see a little bit more of the person and the human that was making it and that they also had a life and a goal and, and you know, 
feelings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And validity. And, yeah, totally. And, and like food is complicated. It's ever changing. You know, we are dealing with a lot of implications of climate change in all aspects of life right now. But I feel like there's this aspect of fine dining where people are like, oh, but that doesn't exist here. Right. It's a vacuum because I spent a certain amount of money. And yep. I think that, you know, ob- of course, I mean, I grew up a very poor kid in California. We never went anywhere to eat. So I more than anyone totally understand what it means to to trade a dollar for a, a product, right? But I think, you know, sometimes the margin for error is very, very small with us. Uh, it's, you know, it's a few flecks of salt. It's a like a swath of olive oil or whatever it may be. And I think it's just, you know, if we could just be a little bit more human about it. I think the important thing and what we always say in my kitchens is we're always just like, we're going to assume it's the thing I say to cooks on their very first days. I'm like, I am going to always assume that you are doing your best. And I hope that you'll always assume that I'm doing my best. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the best that it's going to be, right? The assumption is that nobody is trying to kind of phone it in. I love that. That's so inspiring. And I think it must be really empowering to people who are working for you to be like, yeah, I, I, I know that there's a human who I'm interacting with instead of just like a manager or an employer, or whatever that like, you know, title differences. Yeah, we try. We try. It's really, really hard. Um, you know, people are a lot more sensitive these days, I think, than ever before. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I want to be a human being to that. But I think, you know, in the end, we obviously have to provide a service. We have to be great at what we do. But if we can at all make it fun or human in the midst of that, that's that's a great goal to have. How do you keep things fun in the kitchen? I think I just try to be myself and I try to let other people be themselves as well. I think I don't mind, you know, dropping jokes and, and being sort of fun about things. If, if everything's going right, it's easy to be that way. Right. Um, but it's just about being there for each other knowing that we're all a family and, um, and that, you know, we're going to be there for each other at the end of the night as much as we are at the beginning. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Instead of like hauling ass out of there. Exactly. So, what do you like? What's an item that you bring into the kitchen that is like just for you? Like maybe it's comfortable shoes, maybe it's like AirPods. What is like your thing that sort of like makes you feel more at ease? Oh, geez, I don't know. It's tough. It's tough to have an identity when you're when you're in your sort of like what I call like my chef pajamas all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know it's like yeah, I don't know. Like I'll wear Jordans to work now, or I will Ooh, yeah. wear like you know fun aprons. Uh, there's a lot of really nice companies that'll send me some aprons and things like that. Um, oh. That will kind of change up the day a little bit for me, right? So it's like it's the little things you do for yourself, or it's like a fun beverage or whatever it may be that I might have with me. Yeah, you're getting a visit from Oscar right now. You've been chosen. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so I would like to pivot a little bit into Austin while still doing some rapid fire questions. Yeah, of course. Okay, what are three words that define Austin to you? Uh, Words that define Austin to me, I think uh, warm, and I don't just mean the temperature. Mm. Uh, It's been a very warm sort of community aspect. I think community would be another word. Um, Mm -hmm. I've never felt so invested in a community in a city um what else austin's been really fun for me i think there's a little bit of everything for everyone um my fiance is definitely trying to get me to be outside more um but no it's it's just a really fun vibrant kind of like young city i love that so warm community fun yeah yeah that's that that's my austin baby okay what's one thing about austin that you wish more people appreciated 
Oh, geez. What do I wish people? I think, I think people appreciate Austin so much. That's why we have so many people here all the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think that people get it. I think the secret's out, the cat's out of the bag. I don't think I have anything that's like, I think people should know this. I'm like, I feel like we need people to know less about us. <laughs> There's so many people here all the time. That is valid. Yeah. I saw that like the most recent statistic is that 136 people are moving to Austin every day. I mean, and it's not just that. It's like how many people are having their bachelorette bachelor parties here? How many people are having their moment here? Yeah, their, you know, whatever. Their moment. Their moment. That is such a good way of encapsulating it. Yeah. It's like they want that Austin moment. They yeah. want like the photo. They want the vibe. Mm -hmm. They want the experience. Yep. They want a paddleboard by day, drink on rainy at night. They want that moment. And then the rest of us who actually live here are like, don't go out this weekend. They're all here, you know? That's why I've started to love Mondays in Austin. Mondays, Mondays are incredible. Yes. It's like, it, it's amazing because growing up, Austin was not a hospitality town, but mm. it's become one. And now I like love my Mondays. Like I go on oh. like two hour long evening walks. I just sort of like make it this thing where I'm like, no one wants to hang out with me. I just get to like be myself without performance. And it's so nourishing. Oh, totally. Those are my days off is Sunday and Monday. So Sunday, is a day that like I stay in my house that's my like inside day right with my dogs and my fiance and we make dinner and then Mondays like mornings are like chore day because not everyone's at the grocery store now yeah so that's nice and then Monday nights is like yeah the, the the only night that I will like venture into downtown or have a nice meal or do something yeah so this is actually a question that I was going to ask you but you basically just told me I'm still gonna ask it though what does your ideal off day look like uh, ideal off day. It usually involves, yeah, my dogs and my fiance. That's pretty much it. That's like, that's perfection for me. I think a few years ago I would have said like going to get a cocktail at a nice cocktail bar and then having a fancy dinner and then maybe going out afterwards for a show or something. And now I've totally turned into one of those people who's like, I would love to watch great British bake off while hanging out with my dogs and drinking a fine bottle of wine with my fiance. That sounds like Evan. <laughs> That's how I know I'm getting old. Oh, totally. And, and I feel so okay with that. I'm I like, embrace it. Lean yeah. in. Well, I think for most of us who had that time and are like, I got to be 20 in New York. Like I had my moment. It's yeah. okay. I'm fine with that. I'm good to pass now. And I'm so content to have like a nice bottle of wine at home and, and just feel that, you know? Yeah. Like really cherish it for mm -hmm. everything it is my whole like friend group our thing right now is you don't always have to do something interesting to be an interesting person yeah and I love that philosophy it's like so liberating mm -hmm. like I can feel bored I should feel bored like I should aspire to feel bored sometimes yes, I would love to feel bored <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure with everything going on in your life that is a luxury right it's now. a little bit of a whirlwind <laughs> yeah I like I you know I would love a day to my fiance she's an English professor so she's always getting on me about reading and I'm just like yeah I would love to read I would love that <laughs> who can who has time for that to just sit in silence with a book for X amount of time. God, I'd love that. What yeah. a luxury. Let someone else dictate what the right. next 30 minutes of your life are going to be. Love that. <laughs> when will that happen? Don't know. <laughs> Don't know. Yeah. Um, okay. ACL or South by? Oh God, neither. Neither. <laughs> My restaurant is right by all of that and yeah. just neither. Neither. Although I will say, I, I hate to say it. I had a fabulous time at the last ACL that I went to. 
Really? Yes. And Why do you I, hate to say that? Because I don't want to encourage more people to do this because it's just bananas down in that area yeah. when it happens. But that happened to be when it was uh, Lizzo and uh, I got to see Robin as well. And I was like, man, this oh, is an yeah. amazing day. And then I was like, oh, I'm one of those festival people now. And so, yes, probably yeah. ACL a little more than South by. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. What is the best concert you've attended in Austin? Best concert in Austin. Oh my God. I don't know the answer to that. I don't think I've been to very many. I don't like crowds, which is a struggle when going to shows. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know that I have an answer for that. I, I'm getting that way. I didn't used to be, mm -hmm. but like since 2020, I do not like being in the middle of crowds. Mm -hmm. It's like really heightened my social anxiety. And I will say I went to New York a few weeks ago and I went to a seated concert for Perfume Genius. Mm -hmm. Incredible. We need more seated concerts. Seated here. concerts, 100%. I, I think about the things that I did in my 20s and the crowds that I, and I was just like, my God, how is that even safe? Like from a fire <laughs> safety standpoint, right? And then I'm just like, now I was like, you know, I'm just like, yeah, I'm one of those people who's like, is there a seat? Are there lines? And then I'm like, ugh, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's, it's an interesting qualifier when I'm looking at venues now. Because mm -hmm. uh, I went to Spoon's secret show at Mohawk last year. And there was like a full on fight that happened because someone was like trying to go to the bathroom and someone else felt like very not okay with that. And I'm like, these 45 year old white guys are going to take each other out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, totally. <laughs> like totally. this is not healthy for anyone. Right. No one wants to be here right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> at the Spoon show. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, what do you think your best quality is as a chef in Austin? As a chef in Austin, I think I'm really rooted in the community here. Mm. I think I'm really, I really care about the community. Like, listen, I love the people who come into my restaurant, their birthdays, their anniversaries, their moment, their day. It's important to me, but being able to highlight what's going on in the world or, you know, whether it's being a part of No Kid Hungry or being a part of communities and schools or all of these different organizations that we lend our, our hand to. That, that's what's important, right? That's what, like, when you have a platform, and not that I ever thought that chefs would have this platform when I was growing up. This is not what I thought being a chef was going to look like. I thought I'd be sort of, like, in the underground, and that's what I wanted. And now we're just so thrust at the forefront, especially now for me. But, you know, if we can use that platform to make things a little better for people, I think that that's really important. And I think you are. Trying, trying, yeah. I I would not limit yourself. I think you are accomplishing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of really great organizations here in town, uh, you know, groups like Urban Roots and, and stuff like that. And so wherever I'm needed, I, I think I do my best to field every call that I possibly can and be available as much as possible for our community. That's incredible. That's such a great answer. Okay, this is a question that you don't have to answer, but I'm going to ask it to you. Perfect. I think it's sort of the root of what Queer Town is all about. What's a lie someone else told you about you that you once believed to be true, but you now know to be false? Oh, God. You know, my fiance and I talk about this all the time, how we feel like as we were growing up, because, I mean, she's so incredibly accomplished, has her PhD, is a professor, is just so brilliant, and obviously what it takes to be a chef mm -hmm. at this level. You know, I think we were just told so many times when we were growing up that we were too demanding, that we were too, like, that what we were looking for in a relationship was, didn't exist, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of the people that we were with were like, you have a very false, we, we both got this, you have a very false 
sense of what a relationship should be because you either came from sort of an unhappy home or never saw a very successful relationship or because you have such high demand on your own personal life that you don't know what it's like to share a life, right? And we met each other and part of what connected us so quickly was we never felt that way about each other. We finally felt like the demands that we had were met by somebody else. We have a very intense, very demanding relationship. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's the easiest relationship I've ever been in because she gets it when I'm super fueled by my work and thrust into it, or when she is writing and in the midst of her book, you know, like we give each other those spaces. We don't have to explain them. And I think in the past, we've just been told so many times that we were too demanding, that we were too, too much for, for someone, you know, to handle. And so I'm really glad that I found somebody that made that false. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a gift to like knowingly shed. Mm -hmm. Cause I think that, yeah, like there is something about being so driven in our professional lives and how that can, I don't know, create insecurities within relationships with people who are just right. like, they operate a little differently. Right. And I think it's so easy for people to, to sort of see something in somebody else. And I, not that I th thought that anybody was being malicious, but I think it's easy to point at it and say, that's how we're different, but that's how you're wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And especially after a battery of like failed relationships, you kind of start to believe that narrative. You're like, well, maybe that is, that is the sort of like caution tape on me is that, you know, these are the things about me that are wrong and that somebody has got to work through. And I think one of the beautiful things about being with my fiance is it's the first time where I felt like I didn't have to apologize for the things that felt so inherently me, you know, mm -hmm. the drive that I had, the ambition, it didn't feel like something I had to be like, well, I'm really sorry that I am going to stay at work late tonight. You know, um, she never makes me apologize for that. And that's been incredible. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. I love that for you. Yeah. Okay. So this is my final question of the day. What is your favorite thing about being queer? Uh, I think my favorite thing has always been our, our own weird secret society that we all have mm -hmm. that, that sort of knowing that we have with each other, um, the understanding of sort of a shared experience, even though your experience may have been a little bit different than mine, we all sort of experience the world in, in a similar way and are seen in a similar way. And thus I think the love that we automatically have for each other is just so magical. That's always been what's special to me about being gay. Like I, you know, I think I've said this before too. It's like, um, you know, if I had a choice, I'd still choose to be gay because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to lose this community. It's so special. And it's one of those things that's just, yeah, you meet somebody else and they say that they're a part of our community and it's just the automatic love that's there is just understanding, you know, it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, that's the whole point of queer town mm -hmm. is to shine a light on the queer community yeah. here. And we have such like compassion for one another and empathy and I think willingness to listen and I just wish more people could embrace that. Yeah. Those are the things I love about us is the softness that we give to each other, the space that we create for each other, and really the level of like space that we give each other for exploration. I think mm -hmm. that very few communities create that. There's such rigid outlines. And for us, it's so open. And I think that's what's so beautiful about it, right? Oh, it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, Joe, thank you so much for thank visiting for us in Queer Town. Uh, you are such a hero to all of us here at the show and it is such a treat to get to talk with you and to get here to hear your perspective and um yeah just know that we're all rooting for you and that you are austin's top chef winner <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate that thank you so much for having me it's such a pleasure to be here well that's all folks as always i'm mace kerwick and thank you so much for visiting us here in queer town 
This episode was edited by Drewski Hewlett and associate produced by Kristen Washington. I'd like to give a big shout out to everybody who's commented, who's subscribed, who's shared this podcast with their friends and family, because we absolutely love getting to sit down with the movers and shakers of Austin's queer community and are so grateful for the opportunity to continue doing so. Y'all come back now, you hear? Thank you.